Hi, everybody. This is Anne Hawley. I edit the Roundtable podcast, at least I do most of the time. That means that I combine the five separate tracks that we make into a single one and then scour it for excessive ums and you knows and taking out all of our mistakes and a lot of our swearing and then inserting the film clips and the music. Well, it was bound to happen someday. A couple of weeks ago, in the midst of a maelstrom of personal and professional demands, I stuck our theme music on the beginning and end of an otherwise unedited recording of episode 414, The Queen, because of course I did. A lot of people downloaded it. Alerts came flooding in on Twitter and Facebook, and I awoke to an urgent text from Valerie, who lives in a time zone four and a half hours ahead of mine. Leslie pulled the episode, but those of our listeners who downloaded the bare naked one now have a better idea of how the sausage gets made and are privy to my audio editing secret, The Clicker. You own a rare bootleg version of our Editor Roundtable podcast, so cherish it. And if you're thinking of trying podcasting yourself, you can use it as a guide. The episode you're about to listen to is the actual edited, finished version. Thanks for sticking with us. Welcome to the Story Grid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer, following the Story Grid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years' experience. My name is Jari, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are four of my fellow certified Story Grid editors Valerie Francis, Ann Holly, Kim Kessler, and Leslie Watts. Each week, one of us pitches a film as an example of a significant story principle. Then we each look at it from our own angle to give authors a deep insight into story structure. This week, Valerie pitched The Queen as a great example of the narrative drive form of dramatic irony. This 2006 British historical drama based on events surrounding the death of Princess Diana was directed by Stephen Fears from a screenplay by Peter Morgan. And just a kind reminder that this is an adult conversation about an adult film, and you may hear some adult words. Valerie will start us off with the genre and a succinct summary of each of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff to orient us to the story. Valerie, take it away. Okay, so I had to do a little bit of work this week to make sure that I understood exactly what the global genre is. And here's what I've come up with. I think the global genre is an internal worldview revelation story with a secondary external society story going on. Now, when I first watched the movie, this is what my instinct told me it was. But of course, here at StoryGrid, we like to confirm what our instinct is telling us with some really solid tools. So the tool that I use to confirm what my instinct was telling me is the 15 core scenes, which is the story spine. And each of the 15 core scenes has to turn on the global value at stake. So for a worldview revelation story, the value shift is ignorance masked as wisdom to ignorance, to cognitive dissonance, to wisdom. But in a nutshell, the three-act summary is as follows. When Princess Diana dies in a car accident, the queen must decide whether to make the funeral public or private. She decides to keep it a private family affair, respecting the Spencer's wishes, and informs Prime Minister Tony Blair that she will not be making a public statement. In the middle build, when the Queen finds out that one in four 
want to abolish the monarchy. The queen must decide whether she'll continue to hold the traditional line, as Philip and her mother advise, or take a more modern approach, as Tony Blair advises. She follows Blair advice and returns to London to carry out his suggestions. In the middle build, when the queen finds out that one in four want to abolish the monarchy, the queen must decide whether she'll continue to hold the traditional line, as Philip and her mother advise or take a more modern approach as Tony Blair advises. She follows Blair's advice and returns to London to carry out his suggestions. Then in the ending payoff, when Blair uses an overly familiar approach with the queen, she must decide whether to allow the informal behavior or return to her previously stoic demeanor. Now that she understands that the world has changed and one must modernize, she meets the PM halfway. She invites him for a walk and confides in him to an extent, but she reminds him that it's her role to advise and not his. Great. Uh, Thank you, Valerie. Now, can you tell us how dramatic irony is used to propel narrative drive in the queen? (laughs) Well, I hope so. (laughs) A funny thing has happened on my way to understanding narrative drive. (laughs) (laughs) Great setup. Great setup. (laughs) While the queen clearly operates in dramatic irony, it's such a subtle and layered narrative story that I'm not sure it's the best example for teaching purposes. But, you know, then again, maybe it's the complexity that makes it exactly the best example. I don't know. We'll see. I struggled to find a story that operated globally in dramatic irony, and I thought that maybe a historical drama might fit the bill. But of course, with any historical story, the degree of dramatic irony depends entirely on the viewer's experience. If it's about an obscure or lesser known part of history, the bulk of the audience may well experience it as mystery or suspense. For example, before watching The Imitation Game, I knew very little about the Enigma and nothing whatsoever about Alan Turing. But for the purposes of our discussion today, I'm going to assume that we all know about the public relations nightmare the monarchy faced following Princess Diana's death. While we know what happened, we don't know how or why it happened. So as a result, the types of questions we're asking ourselves are, What was the queen thinking during this time? How did she come to make the decisions that she made? And what happened to change her mind? Dramatic irony, as I've explained in past episodes, is when the audience knows more than the protagonist. Now, Robert McKee says that dramatic irony evokes a feeling of dread in the audience, and for it to work, the story needs an empathetic protagonist. The example I always use is this. If we know the protagonist is walking into danger and we care about her, we'll dread the pain or danger that we know she's about to face. However, in preparation for this episode today, Anne pointed out a really interesting thing. She said that when she read A Little Princess, the dramatic irony, knowing that Sarah's savior was looking for her, created a sense of hope and urgency. And I can see where she's coming from. So maybe a better way to look at dramatic irony would be this. When we as the reader know more than the protagonist we empathize with, we experience a feeling of anticipation about what's to come. Either 
that something bad will happen or that something good won't happen. Okay, so what about the queen? As I said, it's a tricky one to analyze with respect to narrative drive because the roles of hero, victim, and villain keep shifting between the prime minister, Princess Diana, and the queen herself. Narrative drive is woven into the fabric of story and interacts with every other aspect of story, including character roles. In a story where we have a clear victim that we know is walking into danger, the effect of dramatic irony is easier to see. When we see Diana and Dodie get into that car and the photographers start to give chase, our hearts sink. We really do feel dread because we know what's about to happen and they don't. But what happens when the roles ebb and flow between the three separate characters? The queen is introduced as a completely unrelatable and unempathetic character. How many of us pose in luxurious clothing and jewelry to have our portrait painted? (laughs) Not many is my guess. (laughs) In fact, the conversation that she has with the artist is designed to set her apart from the viewer. I envy you being able to vote. Not the actual ticking of the box, although it would be be nice to experience that once. The sheer joy of being partial. Yes, of course, one forgets that a sovereign, you're not entitled to vote. No. Still, you won't catch me feeling sorry for you. You might not be allowed to vote, (laughs) ma'am. But it is your government. Yes. I suppose that is some consolation. Is it possible to portray a monarch in an empathetic way? Well, yes, absolutely it is. We saw that in the King's Speech where Bertie is made into the underdog. And in The Crown, the TV show, Queen Elizabeth is portrayed as a lamb to slaughter and is far more empathetic there than she is in this portrayal. One question I'm asking myself, and I honestly, I don't have an answer yet, but at least I've come up with the question, so that's a start. <laughs> the question I'm asking myself is, whether the choice of genre also helps create an empathetic character. Performance stories, for instance, have a framework where the protagonist is up against a much more powerful foe. And whatever Princess Diana was or wasn't, she certainly didn't have more power than the Queen of England. I think that's why this story isn't really about power. So it's not really a global society story, right? Instead, it's about the queen's lack of understanding that times had changed. Diana seemed to know that and therefore can be seen as having more wisdom in this particular area, but certainly not more power. What are we to make of the queen? Well, for me, the amount of empathy I had for her shifted depending on which role she was fulfilling. The story certainly gives insight into her thought process, or at least what the writer's guess might have been her thought process, and it offers another point of view on the events that unfolded. When the queen is being criticized by the people and is the victim, I'm on her side. If the Spencers expressly wished to have a private funeral, we applaud the queen for respecting that and for not making a circus of the whole thing. When the public and Tony Blair are shocked that there isn't a flag flying half-mast over Buckingham Palace, initially we're shocked too. We're wondering how she could possibly be so cold. But then, 
in a fabulous cookout scene that is a prime example of how to use exposition, we learn that the royal standard flies on the mast for one reason only. Robin had a call from the Prime Minister who expressed his concern. About what? About the flag above Buckingham Palace. He thinks it should be flying at half-mast. And I hope Robin told him there isn't a flag above Buckingham Palace. There's the royal standard, which flies for one reason only, to denote the presence of the monarch. Since you're here, the flagpole is bare, which is as it should be. Isn't it possible that for some people, the royal standard is just a flag? And the flagpole being bare sends out the wrong signal. No, that's not the point. The point is, it's more than 400 years old. It'll have been lowered for anyone. Your grandfather didn't get the flag at half-mast when he died. If your mother died tomorrow, she wouldn't either. So expecting it to be half-mast for an ex-royal doesn't make any sense. When people wonder why she hasn't made a public statement or shown a public display of emotion, we're reminded that as monarch, part of her role is to provide a steady and calm sense of leadership in times of trouble. That is what she has always done even during World War II. And it's what her subjects have always drawn strength from. A leader does not have the luxury of freaking out or falling apart under pressure. That would only heighten public anxiety. So at these moments, I'm asking myself how her critics could possibly expect her to behave any differently. But at other times when Diana is shown as the victim and the queen is in the villain role, our protagonist is at best a doddering old woman who's out of touch with reality. The chasm between her and the audience widens, and she becomes less empathetic. A great example of this is the parallel between the way the establishment treated Diana and the way they treated the stag. A lot of people wonder what that whole stag thing was about. And in an interview with Charlie Rose, neither Helen Mirren nor Stephen Frears would explain what they were trying to do there. They said only that it was up to the audience to draw from it what they will. Okay, so since they've given me liberty to interpret, here's how I see it. The royal family are hunters. They stalk and torment innocent, beautiful creatures. Both the stag and Diana were their victims. However, we see little remorse from the queen with respect to Diana, although there's a point when she admits having some part in it because both she and Philip signed off on the marriage. When she does shed a tear, it's not clear if she's mourning the loss of a former daughter-in-law or reacting to the stress from the public relations fiasco. When the stag is killed, she stops everything to go see the body. However, Diana's corpse has been alone at the palace all week. And this is one of the things that the people were so upset about. Add to this the general sense that the queen relates better to animals than people. She's known to be great with dogs and horses, but she's not really known to be much of a loving, warm mother. And we start to wonder what kind of cold-hearted automaton is on the throne. Now, while the queen and Diana each play the victim and the villain, Tony Blair also shifts roles. At various points, he's either the mentor, the hero, or the villain. And I could go on for hours about this, but I know everyone has a lot to say about this, so I will move on. 
Back to the question that I set out to answer when I started studying this film. What happens to narrative drive when the roles of the hero, the victim, and the villain are shifting around? Well, I think it serves to destabilize the viewer or the reader. We're constantly asking which character is in the right and who we should be rooting for. I've talked before about writers who sustain narrative drive by answering questions in a way that raises more questions. And I think that's what's going on here in The Queen. This kind of narrative does not tell the audience what to think. It presents various points of view and then lets the audience draw its own conclusion. It doesn't fully answer every one of our questions. In fact, it leaves us with more questions, deeper questions than when we had when we started out. Thanks, Valerie. That's a wonderful discussion on how the complexities of this particular story, how it kind of ebbs and flows. Now, why don't we hear some additional insights from our other fellow roundtables? How about you, Leslie? What do you have to say about this? So I'm studying conventions this season, and I was really pleased to see just how the conventions of the worldview revelation global genre blended and supported the elements of the society genre and vice versa. So I'm going to walk through them and talk particularly about the purpose that these conventions serve within these stories. First, we have in the worldview revelation global, we have a particular type of protagonist. This is a sophisticated protagonist with a strong will, and what they lack is a critical piece of information they need to make a wise decision. Now, they experience cognitive dissonance when what happens in the world doesn't align with what they have seen in the past. There is a strong mentor figure, and in this story, it's mainly Tony Blair, the new prime minister. Now, he's not a conventional mentor since he's much younger and actually more inexperienced than the queen. Of course, she makes sure that he's aware of this in their first meeting after the election. Have we shown you how to start a nuclear war yet? Uh, no. No, first thing we do, apparently. Then we take away your passport and spend the rest of the time sending you around the world. <laughs> you obviously know my job better than I do. Yes, well, you are my 10th prime minister, Mr. Blair. My first, of course, was Winston Churchill. But who can mentor the Queen? So to understand this, we need to know the purpose that the mentor serves in a worldview revelation story. And it is that they are someone who is in a better position to see and understand the circumstances than the protagonist. So in this case, it is Blair, and he's really ideal because he has an establishment upbringing and education but he has modernist leanings and he can really bridge the gap and make suggestions and ease the queen toward the revelation that things need to change. The next character we see in these stories are shapeshifters and they are the people who say one thing and do another. And this disconnect allows the protagonist to see that there is some information that they are missing. Now, Diana, as presented in this story, is different when she is in front of the media than she is at home. 
And you can see another example of this too in the way that Prince Charles and his secretary make use of the tabloids even as they criticize them to get the picture of the flag of his private residence flying at half-mast. So there's a lots of different examples of this kind of thing which pushes the protagonist toward the revelation that they need. There's also a big social problem, and this provides the context in which the protagonist can see that they lack vital information to make a wise decision. So in the big picture of big social problems, perhaps the one we have in this story seems like small potatoes. But in a rapidly changing world, the British people need someone to look to, someone to provide leadership, and the Queen has provided that in the past. Now, we learn that the British people need different things from the Queen than they did in earlier times, and we wonder whether she'll be able to step up to that challenge. There's also a clear point of no return, and this is the moment when the protagonist knows they can never go back to the way things were before. When the queen hears the polling results, she can no longer deny that she is out of step with her people. So once she knows that, she must decide what to do about it. The final convention for the worldview revelation genre is a win-but-lose or lose-but-win ending. Because all change, even when it's for the better, represents a loss. The queen loses the way that she used to relate to her people, and also her belief that she knew the British people better than anyone. But she gains a new understanding of them, and presumably that would help a character like hers make wiser decisions by taking the new needs into account in the future. So now I want to look at the society conventions. And to me, it's really interesting because the queen advises the government, but doesn't actually hold power, doesn't have a say in the laws. So the power the people are asking her to share here or change is the role the royal family plays in their lives. What type of leadership is she going to show? And will the queen adjust her approach or cling to her old ways of doing things that are more comfortable for her? We have one central character with an ensemble cast. So here, obviously, we have the queen. We have our husband, the Duke of Edinburgh. We have the queen mother and Prince Charles and the staff. And each has a different reaction to and level of acceptance of the revelation that the royal family is out of touch with the British people. We also have a big canvas, and this can be internal or external, and here we really do have both. Internally, we have how the queen deals with what her role is in relation to the British people, but externally, we're looking at how Britain, an old nation steeped in tradition, deals with a rapidly changing world. Similar to the point of no return in the worldview genre, we have a clear revolutionary point of no return, and it's really the same moment. Blair shares that polling data that indicates that most people think the royal family have handled Diana's death poorly, and that not an insignificant number of people would prefer to do away with the monarchy. The next convention is that the vanquished are doomed to exile. 
And so here, if the queen cannot learn to relate to the British people in the way that they need her to, in a more modern way, then it's possible the British public will decide they don't really need her anymore. There's also a power divide between those who are in power and the underrepresented class, and that is large. The queen has great wealth and autonomy when it comes to how she responds, but she also has this vulnerability and strength, on the other hand, that she cares what the British people think of her. Now, this isn't as wide a gap as we often see in society stories, but here we're dealing with personal autonomy and she can really decide what she wants to do, even though there are consequences. And again, in the society story, we have a win but lose or lose but win ending. And here again, the queen gives up some power or the illusion of power over autonomy in how she relates to the British people, but she gains, and of course the people of Britain also gain, in her willingness to relate to them in the way they need. Thanks, Leslie. Kim, how do you feel about the queen and its global internal genre? So hooray for another global internal genre, especially a global worldview story, which I absolutely love, and I'm always on the lookout for more examples. So this one, as everyone has mentioned, is a really interesting case study because the majority of worldview revelation stories that I've come across in the past have operated on suspense, where we know the same amount of information as the protagonist. However, as Valerie has shown, this film or this story operates on dramatic irony. This seems to fly in the face of how an audience typically experiences a revelation story, where the author withholds the essential factual information from the protagonist and in most cases, the audience as well. If we think about all of the other examples that we've mentioned before in blog posts and the podcast and et cetera, The Sixth Sense, Arrival, Shutter Island, and Oedipus, in all of those examples, we didn't know the truth or the twist until the protagonist did. So what happens when the audience already has the factual information that the protagonist is missing? And how does that change the way the story is told and the way that the life values are established and shown throughout? And another fascinating aspect of worldview revelation stories and global internal genre stories in general are their dependence on external genre life values and how they work together. So let's quickly go through Friedman's framework just to show you why precisely this is a worldview revelation story. And then we'll take a look at a couple elements of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff. First of all, who is the protagonist? Well, that is clearly the queen. And in the beginning, her character is she has a strong will and her motives are for duty, that is to serve. Her thought is she is extremely sophisticated. She's an expert in history, even though she is currently out of touch with the present needs of her people. And that is her missing piece of information. Her fortune, well, she's the queen. She has been for 50 years plus. And so we know her level of status um, within society is quite high, even though it is fascinating, her difference between power and autonomy uh, versus duty and service. And by the end, her character is unchanged. She is still as strong-willed and as committed to duty and serving as ever. Her thought is, She is still an expert, and now she recognizes that she is out of touch and that there has been some shift in values within her people that she wasn't previously aware of, and that she gains that information and is able to make new choices. 
And her fortune by the end, originally I said it was unchanged, but it actually goes up in fortune. Her status rises because Tony Blair tells her that she's more respected now than ever, despite that very horrific week. So how do we feel about this change? I'd say we're relieved, especially because we're operating in dramatic irony and we're seeing everything as it happens and knowing what the queen needs to do and hoping that she does it. So when she finally does make the changes she needs to make, we can rest easy that everything will return to status quo. So the genre here is worldview revelation. The general cause and effect statement for this is when a protagonist with well-developed will but lacking in essential facts experiences doubt about their circumstance, which leads to a revelation of a shocking truth, they can make wise and appropriate decisions. So here it is specifically for the queen. When the longest reigning monarch who does not recognize her modern people want and need her to publicly engage in grief, she dismisses the claim as hysteria. But when she learns her inaction directly puts the crown at risk, she realizes it's not hysteria, it is a shift in values, and she heeds the modern advice. That's the change. So let's take a look at how this change takes place over the spine of the story. First, we need to look at the life values for our global genre, and in this case, worldview revelation falls within the ignorance to knowledge range. So once you recognize which spectrum of life values your story is on, you'll want to define the range that your story will cover. And from there, you'll want to create specific definitions of how those life values play out within your story. And from there, you can create gradations that allow you more subtle nuanced changes from scene to scene throughout the story. And this will expand on those four pillars that we typically see in a life value range. So starting with the negation of the negation here, we have ignorance masked as knowledge, then shifting up to ignorance, then what I call acknowledged ignorance, and then shifting up to cognitive dissonance, and then shifting up to what I'm seeing here, which is knowledge with still with some cognitive dissonance. Then we have knowledge with clarity. Then we have wisdom as knowledge applied with appropriate action in the moment, and finally, by the very end, wisdom as knowledge applied with appropriate action hereafter. The queen is told directly what she needs to do numerous times, but fails to recognize it as sound advice because she's operating from a traditional perspective. So we have several additional gradations of life values within the knowledge before receiving true wisdom. There are some additional conventions that I've identified for Revelation that I wanted to point out, that the protagonist is an expert in their field, and this is what allows them to believe that they are correct from the get-go. That's why they end up in ignorance masked as knowledge, because they believe they have all the information that they need, and rightly so in the most part. There is a clear goal or want that they're actively pursuing that involves solving some kind of mystery. Now, this is how I previously identified it because all the examples I've looked at had this piece. But in this case, it seems everyone else is trying to determine the best course of action, but the queen is oblivious that anything needs to be done at all. So it's kind of flipped in this case. And that may be a direct effect of the dramatic irony piece as opposed to operating in suspense. There are clues that tip them off that something is not quite right. And these are the opposite of red herrings because these clues point to the truth, but the protagonist dismisses them or just doesn't fully pursue them, or in this case, maybe doesn't notice them at all. And finally, it's that the truth, that piece of information that they're missing, that factual knowledge, it's directly related to the protagonist in a major way. 
So I have created another nerdy spreadsheet with my observations, and there'll be a link to that. It's down and dirty. It's not fully formatted beautifully or anything like that, but it is my raw interpretation of the events, and hopefully it'll be of use to you if these are the kinds of stories you're interested in looking at. The idea of an opposite of red herrings operating in in dramatic irony is really fruitful. I, I want to pursue that idea. I think that's brilliant, that there are clues lying on the ground that the reader can see and that, in effect, the detective, you know, the, the protagonist can't actually see. That That's just such an interesting idea. Yes, I agree. And I love dramatic irony. So I this was a really fascinating example for me to watch. You know, dramatic irony and worldview revelation stories is such a fascinating pairing. So I just want to point out a couple things from the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff about how we're establishing the life values. The protagonist is established as an expert right from the get-go in that initial scene with the painter. We see that she is an expert, which is part of what we need for our worldview revelation story. And we also see how the aspect of her power is playing out. And this time that she is of the literal reigning power. Although, as Leslie pointed out, which was really helpful to me, it's more about autonomy than actual power of changing laws. Also, in her first scene with Tony Blair, where she mentions you are my 10th prime minister, again, shows how much she is an expert at what she's doing and how long she's been there and all of those things. We establish our life values for the society story, the ruling class versus the underclass, and the external life values of power and impotence. And it's so fascinating to me to see some of these initial setup scenes where the queen is woken each morning, she's directed by a schedule and duty, And so, again, as much as she is in power, she still is very much in service at all times. And people are interrupting her and telling her to go here and there and all of those things. It was also interesting to me to recognize how much Diana's actions directly impact the royal family and something that they have no control over. In the middle build, a couple clues that the queen is oblivious to that I noticed were that there are all these other public leaders that are giving accounts about Diana, but the Queen scarcely seems to notice. We have President Clinton and Nelson Mandela. All of these things are happening, and it's on TV, and she just doesn't even seem to notice. And instead, they're talking about the stag, and they just seem more interested in that than than noticing what's going on in the world. There's a distinct moment when the Queen's secretary, Robin, tells her that the police commissioner is asking for condolence books for the growing crowds. They'd be easier to marshal around if we had some way to put them in a queue. Also, that there are flowers blocking the main gate, which interrupts the changing of the guard. And all of these, you know, again, really obvious practical things that show this is not business as usual, but the Queen doesn't recognize them for what they are. Not to mention all of the times that she's blatantly advised to take specific actions. And as Valerie mentioned, it makes sense why she doesn't understand the advice because she's it's so contrary to her experience and expertise. I would say the greatest moment of ignorance masked as knowledge is when the Queen states, I doubt there is anyone who knows the British people more than I do, Mr. Blair, nor who has greater faith in their wisdom and judgment. And it is my belief that they will any moment reject this, this mood, which is being stirred up by the press, in favor of a period of restrained grief and sober private mourning. That's the way we do things in this country, quietly, with dignity. 
what the rest of the world has always admired us for. Another really powerful moment comes right after that, when the Queen's secretary, Robin, calls the prime minister back because he'd been listening to the phone call and explains the queen's perspective. And I think this moment for me was so powerful to really understand the context of the queen and the way she came into power, what what had transpired when that happened, and the way that all of these current events would be resonating with her and reminding her of what had happened to her father. I understand how difficult her behavior must seem to you, how unhelpful, but try and see it from her perspective. She's been brought up to believe it's God's will. She is who she is. I think we should leave God out of it. It's, uh, it's just not helpful. She just won't have seen anything like this since the abdication, and I cannot emphasize enough what effect that had on her. Unexpectedly becoming king as good as killed her father. I'm afraid she's in a state of shock. This public reaction has completely thrown her. And then I just wanted to make a mention that because of this, I interpreted the stag slightly differently. It seemed to me to highlight the parallels between the queen's father and Diana, that they're all victims of being in the public eye, the stag, her father, and Diana. And I believe that her tears are for them both, you know, remembering her father and Diana and tears for herself and her grandchildren. In the ending, and endings are something I've been looking at as, you know, are these endings satisfying for the global internal genre stories? I mentioned that we feel relief when the queen realizes what she needs to do and does it. But for me, the genuine relief doesn't really come until the very end, because although the queen cognitively knows the truth and takes appropriate action, which is wisdom, she's still very much in cognitive dissonance throughout, throughout the speech, throughout the funeral, All of it is still very strange to her. Even though she is doing what needs to be done to survive, it doesn't really hit home with her until later, until she's had time to process it in her own way. This becomes a difference between factual knowledge versus personal understanding based on values. Part of what we experience in this film is strange math. And as you'll see in the show notes, Valerie has identified the ending payoff as the final scenes with the Queen and Tony Blair, where the Queen finally shifts to true understanding. Her need to understand the factual knowledge and know how to apply it is for more than just that single week and event. It shifts in values when she says, Nowadays, people want glamour and tears, the grand performance. I'm not very good at that. I never have been. I prefer to keep my feelings to myself. And foolishly, I believe that was what the people wanted from their queen, not to make a fuss nor wear one's heart on one's sleeve. Duty first, self second. That's how I was brought up. That's all I've ever known. But I can see that the world has changed. And one must modernize. In addition, the long middle build, you know, the all is lost moment and the dark night of the soul are not obvious. Perhaps academically we can point to them, but when it comes to that visceral punch in the guts moment that we're used to, it feels like it's missing. And uh, ironically, this is similar to the observation I made about The Spy Who Dumped Me, a story that could not be more different from The Queen. But in the case of The Queen, the subtle and nuanced life value shifts, including a subtle all is lost moment and a subtle dark night of the soul, they do seem to align with the point of the story. 
that the queen has been taught to live by a different set of values, one that is more subdued about emotions, one that is duty first and self second, something that a modern era certainly cannot understand. Looking at the other genres that are in play, um, as everyone's mentioned, the external genre of society. And also I wanted to mention for Tony Blair, there seems to be a worldview maturation plot, or another way to look at it would be through Norman Friedman's lens of a worldview affective plot uh, regarding the queen. He begins with a very black and white view of modernism versus traditionalism, you know, what the role of the monarchy is and that it's something to be phased out. And his goal is to radically modernize the Constitution more than has ever been seen before. But throughout the course of the story, he comes to recognize the queen and her role in new ways. He finds her sympathetic and fascinating. He admires her, the way she thinks, what she does, and the way she changes her actions in order to survive. And he openly supports her and defends her to his advisors. So he definitely comes to embrace a more nuanced, gray view of holding multiple truths in his mind at the same time. The final thing I wanted to mention, as always, is the big meta why behind these stories. Why do we need global worldview revelation stories? And I think it's because we all get it wrong sometimes. We act in good faith based on what we know and the expertise of our experience and understanding and still get it wrong. Experts in their field get it wrong. It's what we do when we realize the truth and the truth of our error that really matters. Global revelation stories give us a chance to watch others do this work. They become a simulation with varying outcomes that we can observe. Some are prescriptive and some are cautionary. They seem to say, do the best you can at this moment, but understand that new information may enter at any time. This information may knock the wind out of you initially, but as you come to acknowledge and understand the new truth, you have the opportunity to assimilate it with wisdom, or you could disregard it. Take heed when you make this choice. I know for me personally, as someone who is always seeking truth and wanting to refresh my model of understanding, revelation stories are extremely satisfying. For me, it's more important to be aligned with accurate truth than to always be right. That's a great thing about this movie is even though it's the Queen of England, you see the humanity in her. Initially, I didn't really like her as a character. I'm like, ah, just pompous and all that, but... I think they did a great job of making her human, Jip. So thanks thanks for that, Kim. Just to note, President Obama said that Queen Elizabeth II is one of his favorite people on the planet. So I think wow. that says a lot. That, that does great. say a lot. What do you think, Anne, about the Queen? Well, I think one of the things that's most interesting about her as a character in this movie is that although we disagree with her choices early on, it's made very clear that she is making those choices based on honorable clear and conscious intentions. So we can't totally despise her. She's wrong, but she's doing wrong things for what in her life were right reasons. So she's, she comes across as more sympathetic than you might suppose from the beginning. The thing that I wanted to talk about about this movie, it was it's so good on so many levels. It's a wonderful movie. I wanted to talk about narrative devices because these are very relevant to novelists and they work in both film and on paper. And here, the three narrative devices that this movie really leverages are also really good for writers to use on the page. And they, what I'm going to look at are setups and payoffs that are delivered through symbolism, epistolary devices, and clones. Now, Brian McDonald 
uh, the author of Invisible Ink, this is one of my favorite books on writing and I recommend it to everyone, calls certain secondary characters in a story clones. This is not a story grid term, but I find it very useful. MacDonald writes, a clone in story terms is a tool for showing, not telling. Clones are characters in your story that represent what could, should, or might happen to the protagonist if he or she takes a particular path. Now, these clone characters don't just serve to fill out the scene or give the protagonist somebody to talk to. In The Queen, the secondary characters may have historical actuality, most of them do, but all of them, Prince Charles, Prince Philip, the Queen Mother, the Secretary, Tony Blair's wife and his chief of staff or speechwriter, Alistair, are clones for the controlling idea of the story. That idea is crystal clear in this movie. Both Kim and Valerie have stated it in their ways, and I'm going to take a crack at it myself. When a proud tradition collides with modernity, both sides will have to change. In story grid terminology for a worldview plot, the controlling idea of this film, to my mind, goes something like this. Wisdom and meaning prevail when the powerful upholder of a long tradition and the powerful champion of modernity can move beyond their clash of values to find some common ground for the good of the nation. And this idea is repeated over and over in the story, and it's repeated via these clone characters. The clone characters that are ranged firmly on the side of tradition are Prince Philip and the Queen Mother, and they both urge the Queen to take the most conservative traditional stance, to let the people's fervor die down, to do nothing that could conceivably tarnish the proud thousand-year tradition of the British throne. They want her to disregard the will of the people, indicating that that will is vulgar and common. Across the divide, openly ranged against tradition and in favor of change and modernity, even to the point of abolishing the monarchy and joking about getting rid of the queen, are Tony Blair's wife, Cherie, and his chief of staff, Alistair. Representing the middle ground that the two main characters must find, we have the queen's secretary, Robin, and Prince Charles. Both are willing to preserve what the monarchy stands for, while they are also both open to some change. Charles crosses to the middle of that divide when he insists on flying to Paris to accompany Diana's body home, though it's against protocol. His action begins to make the queen reconsider her own strict stance. Now, Robin, the queen's secretary, makes one secret phone call to Tony Blair right at the midpoint and explains the queen's private beliefs based on her unique personal background. As a result, Blair begins to change his mind about her. A few scenes later, he takes the information to heart and gets angry with his staff for their disrespectful attitudes towards the royal family. Well, at least the old bass finally agreed to visit Diana's coffin. You know, when you get it wrong, you really get it wrong. That woman has given her whole life in service to her people. 50 years doing a job she never wanted. A job she watched kill her father. She's executed it with honor, dignity, and as far as I can tell, without a single blemish, and now we're all paying for her blood. All because she's struggling to lead the world in mourning for someone who, who threw everything she offered back in her face, and who for the last few years seemed committed 24-7 to destroying everything she holds most dear. In addition to this device of using clones to keep the controlling idea sharply in focus in every scene, we have setups and payoffs in symbolism. 
The story opens on the queen posing for an oil portrait, as we've already mentioned. All the pomp, ceremony, and tradition of the monarchy are represented in this scene by her elaborate regalia, which she's wearing in order to be painted, and by the fact that it's an oil painting rather than just posing for a photograph, right? She speaks to the artist almost casually, but he's the outsider, perhaps representing the common man or common person, looking at the queen sort of the same way we are looking at her in the audience. The portrait in the opening scene is paid off in the closing scene, as the Queen and Tony Blair have their first real normal conversation. They're walking along a hallway lined with statues and portraits of past dignitaries. They pause before a nude statue of a woman, just as the queen admits that it was hard to take the throne at such a young age. In this moment, she is bearing her soul as much as she ever will. Now, another powerful symbol is the stag, and we've, we've been talking about the stag, and I have a different idea about the stag. I agree that no animal could more clearly symbolize the royal right of European kings and queens with all the ancient customs around stag hunting. And at least from the queen's own point of view, these are proud and honorable traditions. The first time we hear about the stag is from Prince Philip. He's the conventional guy, right? Who thinks nothing of taking his bereaved grandsons out to kill it for sport as a way of taking their minds off their mother's gruesome death in a car wreck. It's just really strange. We meet the stag ourselves in the most extraordinary scene where Queen Elizabeth is alone in the Scottish Highlands. She gets a moment alone outdoors. The stag approaches and she admires its beauty. And then as she hears some hunters approaching, she shoes it away, trying to preserve its life. Off it goes and she's happy to have helped uh, save it. In this scene, the stag becomes a kind of clone for the queen. It's the part of her that loves the wild hills and the beauty of her country more than the part of her that inherits a thousand unbroken years of royal stag-killing tradition. The setup of the stag is paid off very sadly when the queen learns that an investment banker, an avatar of the nasty modern world, has paid to shoot it. He didn't kill it, but only cruelly wounded it so that the gamekeepers had to go after it and put it out of its misery. We see the queen run her hand over the bullet hole in the dead animal's neck, and she begins to realize that the monarchy, too, has been wounded, partly by Princess Diana's own behavior before her death, but also now by the way the royal family is responding to the tragedy. The queen wants the monarchy to survive, not to be put out of its misery. She is stronger than that. So that's symbolism in this story. And there are many other little bits of symbolism that run repeatedly throughout the movie. It's a masterclass in the use, subtle use of symbolism. And the third narrative device that I want to look at is epistolary exposition. This movie makes full use of news footage, some of it genuine for a historical film from the period, and some of it looked like it had been recreated. Via news reports, we get explanations of Tony Blair's election, we get an interpretation of the royal family's actions, we get a clear picture of Princess Diana herself, and we get an understanding of the massive outpouring of love and grief by the people of Great Britain and the world. Now, I can't say for sure, but even a viewer too young to remember Diana would probably be able to understand the impact of her death because this epistolary device is so well deployed here. So, clone characters. 
visual symbolism and epistolary devices are the three narrative devices that I think this film does really well. Clone characters provide intellectual ideas and repeat the theme of the story in an emotional form that's easier for the reader to internalize. It creates empathy and sympathy. Visual symbolism, like the portrait and other works of art in the palace and like the stag, easily translate to the written word. If I'm doing my job as a novelist, you, the reader, won't feel at all hit over the head with these symbolic elements. They will feel organic to the scenes they're in and will provide richness and depth and resonance to the reader at a subconscious level. They are worth pursuing in your writing. And finally, there's nothing easier or more accessible to the reader than familiar epistolary devices like news reports, letters, transcripts, text messages, emails. They deliver exposition in a digestible, natural-feeling form when no character on the page could realistically be actually talking about the subject. All these devices are readily adaptable to the written word, and I encourage every writer to take a close look at this film to appreciate how well all of them are used throughout. All right, Anne, great. To wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners. This week's question comes to us from Dave and Van, who left us a comment on our Live from Nashville episode a few weeks ago. Here's his question. Trying to get a sense of the contemporary fiction reader, from this podcast, I'm getting a university-educated female of means whose primary narrative story sense taste comes from film. Does that sound about right? Thanks for the question, Dave in Van. Uh, it's an interesting question and not one where ever, we've ever really looked into. So Anne and I did a little research into American readers from marketing charts. American readers read more nonfiction than fiction. In terms of men versus women, 68% of men and 77% of women say they've read at least one book in the past year. The younger you are, the more you read, with 80% of 18 to 29-year-olds reading, while only 67% of 65-plus crowd picked up a book last year. People with college degrees definitely read more than people without. The difference there is 86 to 62. Means or income is less relevant, but the ability to buy books certainly comes into the picture. 65% of people living near or below the poverty line read books, compared to with 81% of the upper, middle, and upper income brackets. I had trouble finding demographics on genre-specific breakdowns, but I did find a Quartz article on romance novels, which had a couple of references that I'll link to. Romance erotica is the biggest selling, in terms of dollars, genre of all the genres, with $1.44 billion in annual sales out of $2.6 billion in total book sales in the U.S. If you look at total unit sales, not sales dollars, then the breakdown is children's general fiction, children's science fiction, fantasy, magic, children's social situations, family health, adult general fiction, adult romance, and adult suspense slash thrillers. And all those are based on Nielsen BookScan data. Then I took a look at Query Tracker, which is a place where agents go to see what's out there or where you can go to see what agents are actually wanting to buy. And the types of genres that are requested most from agents include young adult, fantasy, literary fiction, children's, science fiction, thrillers slash suspense, middle grade, romance, historical, and women's fiction. 
I bring up the agent requests because that usually is a leading indicator of what's up and coming and what's in demand since a shortage of titles in those areas will garner a higher cover price. Thus, agents are going to want to have more of those in the pipeline. They'll get a higher percentage of the profit. But getting back to your question and your assumptions about fiction readers as university-educated females of means whose primary narrative story sense taste comes from film, based on my research, I'd say uh, you're wrong. The world of writing and fiction in particular has a diverse set of readers that is genre-dependent, and you've got to look into your genre uh, for what you want to write and who your target audience will be. So I hope, uh, Dave and Van, that answers your question. If you have a question about any story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT, or better still, by going to storygrid.com slash resources, clicking on Editor Roundtable Podcast, and leave us a voicemail. We love to hear your voice. That wraps it up for this week. Great discussion. Thank you, Anne, Kim, Leslie, and Valerie for excellent editorial insights into the Queen. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of how to incorporate dramatic irony into your own stories. You can find links and additional materials in the show notes at storygrid.com. If you'd like to find out more about what we do, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. You can support the show by telling other writers about us or by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Join us next time for our final episode of Season 4. Kim has finished her study of global internal genre stories by examining the 2018 drama Puzzle. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.